Welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. I'm your host, Andy Sitto. Uh, I'm pretty excited right now. My band just got to play Fiddler's Green this weekend, and it was totally awesome. It was a much bigger stage than any we've ever played on before. It was a country bill, but I think we I think we fit in just just fine. We're a little bit different, but I think that was a good thing. It was uh, Chase Rice, Michael Ray, Walker Hayes, Seth Ennis, and and us, uh, Andy Sitto Band, and it was super cool. And we got there early, and everybody they asked where our lighting guy and sound person and banner was, and I don't have any of those things. So it was just the four of us showed up at this huge eighteen thousand cap amphitheater, and uh, local band did our thing. It was it was really cool, really neat experience. Uh, it was a pleasure to share the stage with all those guys, and. It was super cool having our own green room. There is like a bathroom and towels and snacks on snacks on snacks and a big screen TV. We all watched the Rockies game after our set. It was it was pretty cool. But anyway, my guest uh, my guest today is Tyler Paul Glasgow. I'm really excited about this episode. This is one of those episodes that I that motivated me to do the podcast when I was thinking about who I would like to interview. Tyler was one of the ones where I was thinking, you know what, if I go through with this podcast thing, I've got to have Tyler on, uh, I've got to have Tyler on the show. Uh, he played in a band called places for a lot of years. Um, and now he has his own solo project, Tyler Paul Glasgow. And I've had the pleasure of playing live with him on keys a couple times and laying the, uh, organ and piano down, on some of his solo stuff as well, and it's 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 really great stuff. It's awesome music, um, and this is this is sort of one of those untold tales of rock and roll. You're not going to find the story of places in a history book, you know, rock and roll history book. But it's it's one of those stories that I think everybody should hear. It's about a band who had an attraction from labels. They were getting produced by. Uh, bass player for the Wallflowers. They were opening for the Wallflowers on tour. They were doing all opening for Jackie Green, doing all kinds of really cool things. And then it just it just sort of fell apart, sort of out of nowhere, sort of suddenly. And it's the the tale of too many bands probably, but they have really great music, really great band dynamic, and it was it was such a pleasure to sit down with Tyler because this was right after their final shows. They took a five-year hiatus and then played two final shows at the Gothic Theater with the Epilogues, which was almost sold out, and then at the Little Bear, which was at capacity the next night up in Evergreen, and I had the pleasure of playing Keys in their live band for their last two shows. I'm calling myself a demolishing member of places instead of a, a founding member. But it was it was super cool. We had we had one rehearsal beforehand, and I met all the guys. And I remember I felt uneasy for about five minutes, and after that, I j I felt like part of the family. I felt like I'd been there the whole time. And obviously, I wasn't. I wasn't really a part of the band. I just I I just was at the very end. Got had the pleasure of playing with them. I was not there the whole time, but it it felt like it. And that was that was because of the guys. They made me feel they made me feel at home. They made me feel like I was there the whole time. And I met some. I think some lifelong friends out of the out of the weekend. It's a huge band. There's a, there's three brothers. One plays bass and two play drums, and they're as tight a rhythm section as you'll get. And it was just awesome. And they've got uh, three guitar players and uh, bass and 
obviously Tyler's in the band and Keys. It's a, it's a huge band and they play great music. I'd say Wallflowers meets Tom Petty meets Counting Crows. So I wanted to sit down with Tyler and talk about everything that happened, places from start to finish in his musical career and what he's doing now, what went well, what didn't go well, what could have gone differently. And we sort of got that tale, and I, I think this is absolutely a page-turner. I know it's a long episode. It's a couple hours, but it is a page-turner. And just stick with us for the first, I don't know, 10-ish, 10, 12 minutes of the interview because it takes a second to get into like any good novel, and then you're going to be hooked and you're going to want to you're going to not want to get out of the car. You're going to want to keep listening to this thing. Tyler is a talker. Um, he'd be the first to say that, but but so am I. So the, the two of us together, my job was sort of to make sure we stayed somewhat on track, and his job was to tell stories, and he's a natural. So without further ado, here's my sit-down with Tyler Paul Glasgow. So this worked out kind of perfectly because yes, it did. we hung out all weekend. Yes, we did. And then this morning, you just got done singing the national anthem. It's it's 9-11. You won't be listening to this on 9-11, but it is 9-11, and Tyler just sang the national anthem um, for a bunch of firefighters at Red Rocks. So that was 3,000 people. Yep. And tell me uh, crazy. what you were just <laughs> telling me. It's insane. Tell me what you were just telling me. Well, first off, there's two crazy things. One that anybody would have the right mind to sing at 8.30 in the morning. And the second is... I've been up since 6. <laughs> <laughs> right, you got to have that two Got to get the hour. vocalizer going. <laughs> the, the other is, <coughs> you were telling me how many steps it is. So as a memorial, they go up the Red Rock stairs, did you say nine times? Right, so what they do is they make nine laps around Red Rocks and in full firefighters gear. And it's as a tribute to the 110 stories that the firefighters walked up and down during 9-11 and it's just a it's a way for them to commemorate their fallen brothers that you know a, a lot of them didn't know any of them I'm sure some of them do and they have connections but it's the bigger greater idea of what you know <clears throat> what it stands for to be a hero I guess in those moments when stuff gets real you know the code red moments we, we experience so few of those as a society and I think we take for granted those that are willing to really step up and step in in those moments you know yeah that's really so it was amazing. very special for me to just be able to say thank you and to just be a part of it. I was tremendously humbled and honored by it. It was crazy. I was shaking, and I, I hope that I did it justice. You know, I'm sh- <laughs> I, I just beautiful. saw the video, and I think you very much did. They had me up on the fire truck, and I felt it was very cool. And, Partly know, like a three-year-old, right? Getting you know, to be absolutely. Up on a fire truck. <laughs> and uh, you know, Calvin, he is three years old, and he just the whole time just kept going, wow. Wow, and I don't know that he w- knew what he was watching or why he was feeling the way that he was feeling, but it was very powerful. Did he know? get to go up on the fire truck with you? Yeah, we took some pictures. We took some pictures nice. up there. Yeah, very you know, cool. That's you special. Can't bring for your little he'll guy. never forget that. Exactly. You can't bring your little guy and not get him up on the fire truck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is he missing school today? Nope, nope. He's not. He's not quite old enough to be there yet. Oh, so he'll oh, be right, right, right. Soon. Race three, but he's, so he he just stayed back living, from daycare yep, today. Yeah, well, we don't. You know, he stays home with my wife all the time, and and awesome. She's begun schooling him. That's why he's so awesome. You know, he's, he's a very alert kid. Yeah, and he's really he knows all of his numbers and his shapes, and you know he's really smart. Jen works with him every day, and she's amazing. She's a better teacher, I feel like, than I ever had. You know, so yeah. I mean, there's with the exception, I had a few in my life that really made a difference, but 
with the exception of them, I would say Jen probably takes the cake. Jen, yeah. <laughs> I could go back through and recomplete some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about, uh, let's jump in with some music stuff. I, I had so, the incredible honor of, I call it a demolishing member. I got to be a demolishing <laughs> member of your band Places that hasn't played in five years. That's right. Um, but did a lot of great things. And then uh, we just did the Gothic Theater uh, with the epilogues on Friday. And then on Saturday... At the Little Bear, which is a very special place for me, and I know it's a very special place for you, and right. kind of a great, a perfect way to go out. And I remember when you booked the shows thinking, well, do you want to do another one after the Gothic? And then as soon as I walked into Little Bear Saturday night, I said, oh, yeah, this is where the last show should right. be. Right. It was beautiful. Um, yes. That was, well, first of all, thank you for being a part of it. Oh, it was absolutely. such a thrill it was you know, awesome. to, to have known you after that band and then to be able to have you be a part of it you know it's so weird like you said we haven't played in five years and i feel like in local time that might as well be a, a lifetime so many bands happened so fast and <clears throat> it was just nice to know that ours was a it was a brief star that that blew out and it was cool that people didn't forget it you know yeah it was cool that i got to share it with you and and julio i mean uh, other people other friends of ours that had never seen places and they just hear the stories i tell and i feel like sometimes you hear the stories about the things that we did and it sounds kind of crazy. It sounds kind of like tall tales, you know, they yeah. sound like, yeah. And then you get to see the band and experience and you go, okay, maybe, maybe it wasn't that crazy. Right. You know? Right. And, uh, we, we certainly did. We did a lot of stuff in a very short amount of time and it was great to just put a bookend on it this last weekend. So thank you for being a part of it. Ah, it was so much fun. Absolutely. Thank I'm you still again. Smiling. I, I'm still I, grinning. <laughs> I felt like I, I, I remember so at first love. I was like, I don't want to, I don't know if I want to be in this picture or whatever because I'm not I'm not really in the band oh, and then by and then by Saturday day. night I felt like I'd been there for ten years yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't you know I haven't and I w with respect but I was it felt that way you know I'm just glad, everybody man. was so cool I wish you would have been there for ten years we would have had a hell of a lot more fun I'll tell you that much <laughs> <laughs> well so for the for the sake of our readers turning sure. the pages in chronological order let's start back at the beginning when did places start um, you know. Give us the let's start the unsung story of okay. rock and roll. Well, I guess if you if you want to start it at the beginning, um, really it's got to start a little before places. Um, when I was a teenager, I started playing really heavily in the Denver music scene. Probably about two thousand uh, two thousand and two, two thousand and three. Um, and you would man, have been was, how old? I was fifteen and sixteen at that okay. time, and so um, at that time. I played in a band called Arnold's Drive-In. I had just joined, and they were already kind of picking up some steam. And we had played all the time at this place called New Song Fellowship. And that uh, that ended up turning into this really awesome, rad venue called Grandpa's Music Box. And it was this great church that had all these – I mean, that's where we went to local shows on the weekend. You know, we, we were not old enough to play in the bars, so we had to play in the churches and in the youth groups and Knights of Columbus, anything. You couldn't play downtown yet. Right. And we had such a devoted following as teenagers. Like, we had such a huge group of people that would just follow us around. And, you know, that sort of then streamed into the band As the Floodwaters Rose, which ended up, uh, you know, we had you a lot of fun. You said As the Floodwaters Rose. As the Floodwaters Rose. As the Floodwaters Rose, okay. Yeah, As the Floodwaters Rose yeah, would be yeah, even yeah. better. <laughs> There's a copyright on that one. Yeah. As the floodwaters rose, yes. And we played all around, and, uh, you know, when I was telling you about Broomstock, that was one of the bands that we played at and, and had a lot of fun at Broomstock early on. I remember Broomstock. They were, you know, Broomstock was really magical when it first started, and, and I was really thankful to get to be a part of that in Arnold's yeah. Drive and, and The Flood and the autobiography, which was 
the band that the flood turned into and you know david um Nick Cozzella was in the band. Those guys were just we were all it's it's kind of cool to see where everybody has went. Those guys certainly went very far. Yeah. Especially Dave, he's had tremendous success in Breathe Carolina and he's just still yeah. killing it, you know. Oh, and a lot of the Broomstock was a rite of passage for a lot of young bands. And I, I went to Holy Family High School okay. and it was a walking distance away from right. Broomstock. So we did that a few times Did too. you ever go when you were a teenager? I went I was prop. I would say no. I probably went for the first time when I was nineteen or twenty. So it was not. And I remember being aware of it in high school yeah. and maybe walking by the grounds a couple times. But it by the time I was playing it, it sort of wasn't the thing to do the last Thursday of yeah. school anymore. No, there was this. There was this magical. I think about four or five year period, man. Where I'm not kidding. Like, I remember uh, the flood played, and we we played. Uh, pretty close in the evening i remember still like every day at sinai new day awakening and all those people were still yet to play and there was already you know several several hundred people waiting for us and when the autobiography headlined the next year there was thousands of people i mean the pictures from that it's incredible it looks like the warp tour or something and it was, was just it a all kids event. mostly teenagers yeah but that was the whole scene at that time you yeah. know it was like where you belonged you know i think we I, all belong to it when i think now if I go back, you know, Broomfield High School, Holy Family High School, all those places right there, and, you know, Legacy, I don't, maybe there just aren't as many kids playing in bands. It's only been a few years, and relatively, since we were there, but... Yeah, but let's talk about, okay, so let's talk about this generational shift here, because this is a great segue. This is how we'll get to how we got to places. Um, our generation was the Nirvana kids that grew up into Blink-182 kids, right? When we were children, <laughs> right? those bands were... Blink-182 is the the Beatles of my generation. They right. were the Beatles. Yeah. To, and I fell asleep every night listening to those albums, you know? And every kid did. Right. And if you had a guitar, it had a Seymour Duncan Invader in it, you know what I mean? And and you wanted to play those songs, and, you know, everybody was so moved. And then all the Splinter groups, Newfound Glory and Phoenix TX, The Starting Line, Jimmy Eat World, all those bands that were so huge to me all came from Blink-182. And at that time... Everybody was in a band because it was like you played sports or you were really into like your studies and then there was kind of everybody else. And we all just sort of that's where we belonged. Everybody, everybody was else. in a band and if and if you weren't in a band then you were a part of the music scene because it was so much fun and this local music scene used to thrive. And not that it doesn't thrive anymore, it certainly does and I'll tell you what, there's a lot of great 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 acts right now in Denver. Like it's Absolutely. unbelievable. It's unbelievable. The city is brimming with talent. This is sort of a different generation. It was like, it was just as much about the music as it was, I think, about being a part of it, you know? Right, absolutely. And... Giving Tyler the headphones. Yeah, okay, <laughs> here we go. Okay, I can hear it now. You know, uh, it was about being a part of something more than just being a part of your own band and your own success. This is before Instagram, this is before all of the look at me tendencies of, of the current generation when it was more about just being a part of something, you know? Right. And MySpace uh, yes. was sort of the bridge, <laughs> which is how I got here, okay? Segway, hold, oh, here we go. Um, so MySpace, is a, it, it plays a seminal part in this story. Um, that was how we could network. That was the first time when you really had the power and capabilities to network, not only just in Denver, everywhere, and be 
accessible to everybody in a local music scene, which we are now. We have Facebook, and everybody, if they see you, they'll add you on Yeah, Facebook but you know what? There's something really magical about that uh, top eight. You, you remember the top eight of MySpace, and I, I don't even know how to use MySpace anymore. I, my MySpace still exists. If MySpace, I never deleted it, but I remember the top eight, and you could expose your friends. The top you know, eight was powerful. Were, the top eight was very, was powerful. very powerful. And then, and then there were those groups <laughs> that we all obsessed over. You remember Secondhand Serenade? You're oh, like, oh you, these guys can do it just on MySpace. You know? <laughs> even before that. Okay, so this is a great segue. Okay, so um, MySpace was a powerful tool for us. So the autobiography started getting successful on MySpace in terms of having lots of plays and having, right. you know, sort of a, a larger network. And we started having fans that weren't just from Denver. And to us, it was like really, you know, I don't take myself too seriously. I've never really looked at it like, whoa, it was mostly like mind blowing to me that it was, you know, that way. And we started booking shows through MySpace and we would get on the road and book shows on the road through MySpace and just keep the party going. It was like this never-ending. It won this, and being able to get a hold of anybody at any time was kind of new at that at that time too. You know, now exactly. now you're getting hit up constantly by people who don't. You know, you're getting hit up constantly by all sorts of different kinds of people. You know, right. if you're booking a venue, but I, there was a new thing at the time where this instant access to people whenever you know it was, it was, it was the new. first time it was yeah. the first time ever where you could i mean people when i was coming up there was still distribution deals like right like it was still like well we got to sign a record deal with a small label so we can get our records into stores so we can get it across the country well now right. you can put your record across the country by just putting it up on itunes it's across the world everybody has access to it on spotify i mean you're talking about 10 15 years ago this just was unthinkable yeah unthinkable kind of amazing because we've adapted exactly. so much to i listen to spotify every day now you know and but it's and it's the money crazy. thing will get worked out you know and eventually because it always does but right now it's just cool that we have the access as artists so that's something i don't complain about you know and myspace was the first time you could be accessible to artists and to people and everybody and you kind of you know it, it is to its downfall what started the whole narcissistic i have to post everything that i think and do and say and live this fake life for the internet that's where it started right and that's a whole different podcast you know but we used uh we used myspace very well and we were very successful and we exploited it very well the best that we could to just play as many shows we wanted to take every show that we could take and during that process i toured with this band called minus my thoughts we played uh they were from montana and they were an awesome band they were older than us and they had toured all around and we kind of were like well we want to go out with you guys and through that process in Greeley I met Chex and we hit it off we had a hilarious uh introduction he was smoking a cigarette out back I'm not kidding you I can paint you this picture perfectly I have a great memory and that's going to haunt these guys <laughs> so what year was this uh so it was 2005 okay so I was 18 yep um I think it had just, we had just put out a record as the autobiography, and we were up at Road, or oh, what was that place called in Greeley? It was a warehouse in Greeley, and it was it was so awesome. It was like a skate park and a youth group and everything inside. It was awesome. I don't remember the name, and I'm so sorry. I know there's people that will be bummed that I don't remember. It was, it, I know that eventually it'll come back, and someone will be like, really, dude, come on. We'll fill in the blank. 
and uh, Chuck's just standing out back, and he's wearing eyeliner. All the minus my thoughts guys wore eyeliner, and I was just no like, way. Whoa. I do not picture Chuckers with eyeliner. And he had a famous Stars and Straps hat on, and a bandana, and Dickie shorts, and long, tall dress socks, and just a dope pair of shoes because he always, you know, Chuck's is always fly. Yeah. And I remember looking at him and just going like, whoa. That guy kind of looks like Travis Barker, but like in a really cool way. Like and he's really cool. It turns out that so he then is he goes Barker. Hey man, what's going on? Checkers. And I said, "What? Your name's Checkers?" He's like, "Yeah." I was like, "Your name is Checkers." He says, "Yes." I say, "Let me see your ID, because you know me. I'm a wise guy. I'm a Pull wise out guy." Your student ID. I, let me see your ID. I don't believe you. You're you're pulling one over on me. So he pulls it out, and sure enough, it's Checkers Barker, the second. And I'm like, you're the second? He's like, it's my dad's name, too. <laughs> and over the years, you'll get to know Checks. I mean, you had the same interaction with him, and it's just it's part of who he is at this point. You know, when he goes to get fa- gets fast food, he'll be like, what what name is it under? He'll go Max or Tyler, because he doesn't want to say Checkers, because then they think that he's messing with him. Right, <laughs> you know? right. But that's exactly, part I of who his, he is. I saw his idea. Yeah, it's I part of who it. he is. And um, we we became fast friends. And he and I have always had this just unshakable, almost instantaneously, you know, like kind of just instantly. It was just, wow. And we we went on the road, and I'll tell you what, we had one of the most insane rock and roll tours in the history of rock and roll with those two (laughs) bands. I'll tell you what, okay? We partied so hard. And that that was back in a time where, you know, we were all 18 in our band, and Nick Ocazella was 21, and... All the guys in Minus My Thoughts were a little older, so they could all drink. Well, this tour starts in Spokane, Washington, and we get our vans and trailers towed. The the first, oh, like no. the real first day of the tour, and um, the the two nights before Where did that, you play in Spokane? we played. It was outside of Hempfest, so we were oh, okay. And yeah, a guy yeah, pulled yeah. a gun on us at outside of our van. So it was in what Hempfest is September, isn't it? Um, you know, it was August at that time. It was so an this August. was an okay. August tour. Yep, and it was. It ended up being about three weeks. It was crazy. It was a. It was a wild, wild time, but just you know, the first show we we stayed at this guy Chris's house, and he was growing all kinds of crazy stuff in his house, and I'd never been exposed to anything like that, you know. And and uh, we stayed on his floor, and there's video of it on YouTube. You know, we wake up and we're all hung over in our sleeping bags on the kitchen floor, and somebody had gone out to the van to try and f- see if it was there. And they had towed both our vans and trailers. <laughs> they were gone. Oh, so no. that's how we started the tour. And it was just, you know, it was so much fun. 600 bucks later, uh, you got all your stuff back. Little Eric, our drummer at the time, he had just gotten some insurance money and he bailed us out. And it was. Uh, what was Checkers doing at that point? Chex was playing drums in Minus My Thoughts, and he was sitting next to me, and we, we, you know, we were both freaking out. There's a, there's a really funny video I'll share with you sometime that kind of catalogs that whole day. So you really guys funny. were not together yet, but you were good friends. That's when we met, and that's when yeah. the seeds started, okay? So I'll fast forward now. Um, after I got home from that tour, the autobiography, we all just creatively, you know, and it's like I look back on it now, like I'm not going to badmouth any of those guys because there's no hard feelings essentially what it was was just everybody went their separate ways you know nick wanted to do kill paradise dave wanted to start his own band with kyle which became breathe carolina and they were tremendously successful both were yeah yep and i in a very fitting day bought an acoustic guitar and a harmonica in g and just kind of set down you know i've always been moved more like at that at that time in my life the three biggest records to me when you know dave and nick were listening to cute is what we aim for right and um 
you know, even Paramore to a lesser extent. Like we opened for Paramore before they were before they were a big band. You right. know, we opened up for Paramore when their first record had just come out, and they were the third out of four bands, if that makes sense. The Rocket Summer headlined. Right. And through that, in a really hilarious, interesting turn, I became a singer songwriter that day. You know, were you um, not were you not writing songs till that point? I was, and I always was. I was always I was big time, but it's a different hat to collaborate with a bunch of guys in a band. You know, those are my formative years, um, and and we collaborated and we played a lot of. You know, I was into the punk stuff and I was into. Um, the hardcore stuff and I came up in that whole scene and that was really important to me. All that stuff was really important to me. The warp tour times, those were, and that's where I learned the camaraderie, you know, and, and certainly the code of ethics amongst a band, you know? Right. Um, but in that time I started, I was really moved by, um, David Gray's white ladder and I had gone mm. through, that was a time in my life where I was starting to, Due to the breakup of that band, I was working full-time at Tokyo Joe's, and all my friends were living in another house, and I was living with some other friends far away, and I kind of felt disconnected from my life, and I started using drugs at that point in my life. And I was really, really taken aback by this sensitive, incredible music. I got into Elliot Smith, and I got into, um, even to a lesser extent, John Mayer's first album. That yeah. was just moving me at that time. It was just completely moving me. And for he, squares, yeah. Yeah, and he had come out with heavier things just then, and I, I didn't quite get it yet. You know, I was still so moved by. And I started getting really into the music that my dad loved, uh, Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Um, man, that stuff just played a huge, uh-huh. <laughs> huge role in my life. And so through that time, I started writing these songs, and that first batch of songs that started at that time we played some of them this last weekend if you can believe that so right i had these this batch of songs and i had no band and i was trying to play all these dates as the autobiography even though i was the only original member and i started playing with jordan and uh my friend alex anderson who's a great drummer and he's done all kinds of great stuff in this town um and this guy don mega who was in a band with checks and that was the first incarnation of places i started writing these songs and we we played broomstock and and i broke up the band after that and i was like you know I, and i was 20 at this time so i'm like okay i gotta i gotta get this going so i called checks and uh, my friend steve samaripa who's a great guy and i love him he was going to school at sae in la which is uh the studio of audio engineering or school of audio engineering right and it's right there on the sunset strip and it's just amazing wow so he was like you know if you guys can get here I'll get the time. And we got this like, you know, five day window. If you guys can get here, we'll make it work. We'll record so, some songs. Right. And so I, you know, I was really strung out at that time and I needed a break. I needed a new change. I needed a new life. Right. And I knew that. Literally strung out. Right. In every sense of the word. And I took this, I had, I was playing a 1979 Gibson Les Paul custom at the time. And this guitar was really powerful in my life because it was the first guitar that I had ever taken a lesson on with this guy, Danny Masters. And when I was in seventh grade, my friend Derek had gotten us this lesson with Danny Masters, you know, so that we could learn the songs for our jazz band. And there was this red Les Paul custom in his off in his little studio space, you know. 
and he played it on the front of his album Electric uh, Babylon, which I had, and he was the first like really nuts guitar player that I'd ever heard. You know, it's just like once you start getting exposed to the real musicians, it kind of yeah. changes everything. Uh-huh. A lot different than Tom DeLonge. <laughs> right, right. And uh, man, so I, I had this guitar, and I had been playing it, and I it was the nicest thing that I'd ever owned. And at the time, I was just playing all over with my friend Kevin Fisher, and um, uh, we kind of just played all over acoustic, and we did all kinds of crazy stuff, and I was just playing this Les Paul. And so I sold it and I drove by myself in my van to Montana and I was playing with some guys at the time who were my roommates and they're all great guys. And I just, it wasn't connecting because I think part of me knew what was there. So I got in my van and I drove by myself up to Missoula, straight up by myself. And I pulled up and Chex is like, man, I can't believe you're here. Like, this is crazy, you know? And at the time I didn't have a way, we didn't even have cell phones that had cameras on them, let alone a voice memo. Right. I had no way to send a demo, you know? And at the time I'd owned this tape studio, I had a 16 track, like analog, reel to reel, like Yamaha mixer and a reel to reel whole thing. It was this whole incredible, it was a huge console and this, you know, and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't ever get the, the recordings that I'd made off. So I had no way to make demos or show them the song. So I just drove to Montana and I just showed up and I said, hey, checks, let's do this. And in that wow. time, Brandon and Drew sat in at the first practice because they were like, oh, here comes this guy. They had followed my band and they knew who I was and, and they respected me. And I had met them and I certainly respected their brother. They were playing in a different band. and It was kind of like. And Ch- uh, uh, Drew and Brandon right. are Chex's younger siblings. Right. And yeah. so what ends up happening is. They sit in on this first practice. And was this first practice initially just you and Chex? Right, for about the first 40 minutes. Okay. And then they got home from work. It was at Chex's parents' place, and they have this wonderful, amazing uh, music room, and it has electronic drum kits set up. So there's two electronic drum kits, and I'm playing low out of my amp, singing in there. They have a great PA system. Their dad's in a band, too. You know, that's where they practice. Checkers, senior. Yep. And... Um, so Brando comes in, he starts playing bass. Drew sits down behind the drum kit, starts playing. They're, we're playing two drums. And my mind is on fire, you know. And a, and a couple weeks before, my friend Alex had got us tickets to go see the Doobie Brothers in Chicago at uh, Fiddler's Green. And I noticed the two drummers in the Doobie Brothers. I was like, that's pretty cool. So all this is clicking, right? And so we have, I spend my first, you know, I spend a week and a half up in Missoula. And I have the time of my life. I fall in love with it. I fall in love with these guys. And... Chex and I drive back down and one of the most hilarious, (laughs) hilarious trips that's ever been made in the history of people. We drove at like 10 o'clock at night and there was lots of energy drinks, um, lots of things being smoked, you know, and we drove throughout the night and it culminated in us standing outside somewhere in Wyoming after it had gotten light out, just laughing. We just were so tired. We needed to pull over and <laughs> take a rest. And we just yeah. laughed really, really hard. And we slept in a subway parking lot <laughs> and drove to Denver. And we headed out to L.A. And um, Checkers and I ended up cutting that whole first four-song demo that Places did, which was the start of Places. He did all the drum tracks in one day. I did all the guitar tracks in one. And when I say day, these are five-hour recording windows, including setup. So, I mean, yeah. he just he tracked everything so quick. I tracked everything so quick. And then we did vocals and we were right in LA on the sunset strip. You know, they're filming adult movies on the, on the 
floor above us and so you're just watching all these hilarious people coming and going and they're really dressed up going in and they don't look very good on the way out and we're just out smoking cigarettes taking break just observing all of this and man it was crazy we we cut this four song record in no time at all like in no time and we drove back in the back of my van and Chex and I sat in the back while all the guys drove and we just listened to it and I knew in my mind what had to be done so this was now about 10 years ago like to the day it was the first part of September by the time we'd gotten back and I just made up my mind so I sold all my stuff I quit my job and I moved up I turned 21 on October 2nd so it would have been 2008 October 2nd 2008 because the DNC with Obama was in was in town in Denver yes. at the time that was big 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 news yep and Chex and I were actually in my van and we got hit by a light rail in my van because I, I pulled a little too far forward and I, we were right in front of the you Civic got hit by Center. a light rail yeah as I it was I think turning. I know exactly what stop you're talking about and uh, I have it, almost been hit by yeah, a light rail yeah it was stop. turning and I was pulling forward like it was turning left and I was I was just pulled a little too far forward but he and I had some stuff going in the car that we didn't really want to get in trouble for and more importantly than that, right across behind the light rail, there Nobody was so was many it was cops. Just a... No, it was just my van, and it, it, it was fine. Like it was, it, it didn't even leave a scrape. It was just funny enough that I backed up by the time the second car turned around, you know. But uh, when the light rail had gone, I mean, we were right in front of the Civic Center building there, where like yeah. there was so many cops, and it was just, it was so funny that we just, it was, it was a highlight. You, you didn't even get pulled over. No, nope, just kept no, going. We, yeah, we were great because they, they were on the other side of the light rail, so they didn't see it. Yeah, right. I made eye contact with the driver as he drove by. You know, <laughs> like we were up in my van, and he was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, man, I, I moved up to Missoula with, uh, with my suitcase and my and, guitar. And what, what year is it now? How old? It's two thousand eight. I'm twenty one. Okay, and, and you're up in Missoula because you're up in Missoula for the Barker Brothers at this point. Right, and because I, because I need to, I just, you know, I have this new batch of songs and this new sound. At the time, I'm really influenced by. Uh, Counting Crows and the Wallflowers, which mm. they've always been huge influences on me, and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I'm like, okay, well, this is what I want right. to do. Those are like, if for me, a big three in my life has always been Counting Crows, Tom Petty, and the Wallflowers. They were just always so instrumental in my life. Yeah, you know, likewise. And so at the time, we're we're really experimenting with it and kind of writing a lot of songs. And I got the guys up there, and they have a, you know, we got a couple guys playing in our band. And then Jordan, who is uh, my childhood friend, moved up with us. And he was my roommate at the time at the old house. And so he moved up with us at the end of the month. And in that time, he was living with his his wife, Mary, or he, who was his fiance at the time. And in the time between when I had moved up and when he moved up at the end of the month, he got her pregnant. And so he moved to Montana knowing it's going to be a temporary thing and he's going to have to move back. So we live. This is John. Uh, it's Jordan. Jordan, Jordan, excuse me. And he's the guy that you filled in for this weekend. Ah, okay. So the only guy I, I haven't met. Right. And it was, it was nuts, man. Um, it was just a really crazy, it was the first like spontaneous, really crazy thing I'd ever done in my life. And it was really cool to do it. I felt alive, you know, I just turned 21. I had long hair at the time. Actually, I had dreadlocks, if you can believe that. I had no, dreaded my hair. I did. I Stop. did. I have pictures. It's so embarrassing. That's that we might, <clears throat> we might change the photo of the podcast just for this episode to like a close up of your dreadlocks. Oh, it was so bad, <laughs> you know, and I was, you know, I had been struggling uh, with addiction for a long time at that point. And so it was just a fresh start for me to just really come off of the bad stuff that I was doing and just be a part of like a new group of people and a new 
life, you and, know. And not to stray off too much, when sure. when did that whole thing start? When did the drug start? How old were you? What did you get into? What got you into it? Well, um, I was 18, um, and I started, um, you know, I, I just, uh, I've kind of always been of the mindset that, like, I like to party, you know, and I was really sad and empty when I was younger. And that was kind of a byproduct of all of that, you know, and I started using really hard drugs and it ended up, um, it saved my life because I had this two year period of, did it start with hard drugs? I mean, what, it, what was the first thing for me? It was always drinking, you know, and smoking weed. And then it right. was like, it just sort of escalated to pills and then to harder stuff after that, you know? Yeah. And, um, Dewey Cox story-esque. You don't want yeah. to be part of this, man. Right. But, you know, when you're an empty person and you're not trying to feel feelings, it's like that's what that stuff is great for. People don't get addicted to it because it's awful. It's because they don't want to feel feelings, and it provides that, you know? And right. that's not a good place to be as a human being. You're not right. supposed to feel that way, you know? And do you, would you consider yourself an addict? At this point in my life, I wouldn't, you know? Um, yeah. At the time, I certainly was. I had to work through a lot of emotional stuff. You know, it's like, how much are you willing to give drugs or alcohol power over your life? If you're willing to just say, well, like, you're powerless, there's a lot of people that do that. I've certainly completed a lot of groups, and I understand that, you know? But the way I feel is that I give it power, and I have, I have, I'm the one that has control, and I'm the one that can make the difference. Right, And Absolutely. that's kind of where I leave it, you know? And at the time, man, it was just honestly... You know, I never set out to be like, I'm going to start using hard drugs. It was, it was just sort of this natural thing. You know, it's like I look back on it and it seems crazy. And was I'm sure it's was everybody else crazy. in your band doing it? No, and it was it was uh, coworkers of mine that I worked with. And, and that was one of the things that led to the downfall of that band, you know, is that I obviously changed. Like I started being a different person. And, right. um, you know, I have a lot of regrets about that, you know. Um, sure. And, and so then now... You're kind of you're 21 and you're up in Missoula, Montana for a fresh start with right. the Parker brothers. And, and what Jordan. a fresh start we had! Man, yeah, it was crazy. You and know? the the drugs kind of stopped. I was away. off drugs. I was I was off um, because I a I didn't know where to find them, which is always a great problem to have. And well, it really <laughs> maybe is, not at you the know? time, but yeah, that was part of the reason why I left. You know, yeah. and um, and B, I was trying to. I knew that I couldn't be on them. I I knew that it was like one of those things where. I mean, th those never have happy endings. No. They always have sad endings, and I didn't want any part of that. And I knew that I was in a bad way, and I knew I had to get out. So I was provided this beautiful, fresh start, you know. And, and Chex's family, they took me in as their own, and they really they took care of me. You know, we lived in this just the smallest, most awful apartment up in Missoula. And uh, it's this little purple house off Alder Street there. And I lived in the front room. And it was this old Victorian house that had been converted into like five or six apartments. And we lived in the smallest, most awful one. And I mean, it was the whole apartment was as the story goes where we're sitting right here, like in this little in your backyard here. This is as big as my apartment was it just this little, this area. little, this little area, two rooms and a bathroom in between. And the bathroom was just a little slice in between the two rooms. So there was two doors to it. And. The toilet was to your right, and the shower was to your left, and the sink was right next to the toilet. So, And for the listeners, the little area that we're referring to in the backyard is, in fact, little. <laughs> my rent was uh, – my share of the rent and utilities and everything was 200 bucks a month, 230 Ooh, bucks a month. Maybe it was worth it for a little place. 
Well, you know, at the t- it was it was amazing because up there I didn't have a job and uh, I I played guitar on the street for money, and I had just kind of I just kind of you know I was very blessed and it it just sort of worked itself out you know and a lot of people took care of me and I I was really hungry and gaunt I feel like sometimes but I always had a good time and I, for me it was about the music you know and it was the first time in my life where music was. You know, there's this Cat Stevens line that's always haunted me. It's, uh, I listen to the wind of my soul, and I let the music take me where my heart wants to go, you know? Yeah. And that was always the thing that I was trying to find. Like, I was trying to find, like, where is this going to take me? And little did I know that at that time, like, that was the question that at that time opened up this whole, what I call walking the yellow brick road. So for me, this was when I realized I was not in Kansas anymore, and we began walking the yellow brick road. We were... uh we were hitting it hard. We would practice every day. You know how it is when you're hungry and you get in those early groups. We practiced every right. day, All and we time. really would shed it. And we actually we we practiced out on Patty Canyon outside of Missoula, at uh, Drew Polifko's place above their garage. And it had just turned winter, and it was cold. So it was like whoever got off work first or whoever was available, you had to go out and turn on the heaters. If he couldn't out and go turn on the heaters for you, and we practiced above their garage. We'd load up there, and it was like, you know, you get into their garage, and you climb up the wooden staircase, and you're just up. It looked like an attic, essentially. And at this point, it's a five-piece band. You, yeah. the three Barker brothers, and Jordan. And Scotty, um, Scotty McHugh, who was our first guitar player, so he was playing guitar. So it was a six-piece. You were playing lead guitar and singing? Yeah, kind of, just kind of, you know. We, Scotty played leads on parts where I was, you know, it was just the two guitar attacks. Two guitar sort of, players, you know? yeah. Uh, and just really, we wrote a lot of songs at that time. As a matter of fact, so so where this chronologically goes is we start playing shows and we're doing okay and we're like, we got to cut a record. So we cut a record up at Club Schmed in uh, Missoula, which is right out, and it's a great studio owned by uh, Ryan Schmedley-Mains, who's former member of Arlo and Weezer. He's a killer, killer dude. And he plays in this band now called Secret Powers and you would love them. They're cool. It's like psychedelic electric light or I mean the dude's a musical genius. He's he's literally like a genius. And at this point you guys were places. We were places, yeah. And that had was, you played live yet? Yes, that was when we had just started. So our okay. first show was at the uh was at the Badlander and it was the nuts. Badlander. Yeah, it was like That's sold the, the out. Upstairs, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And uh, it was sold out, and it was it was just crazy because there was like a lot of buzz, and we had had a lot of friends, and we were you know having people come by our practices, and so it was just one of those things where, and it's a college town, you know. There's so and, you were meeting friends essentially through, <coughs> uh, through the Barkers and their friends, and kind of and becoming then, part of that circle. And then and the the other friends that I made, Brian Bobowick and Bo, all the fiance guys, they were in this band called Fiance at the time, and you know I I stayed with them. They were the rock and rollers that you know I hung out with that weren't in my band and. You know, I just kind of went where the wind blew me every day, and it was just sort of like whatever today is going to be, it's going to be. You know, I had no plans, sure. and it was amazing. It was a it was a really amazing time, and we uh, it was it was really incredible, man. We we cut this record and we paid for it ourselves, and we actually went in and we had like twenty songs, and we cut them down to eleven the first night. We tracked drums, so the first two days we spent like ten days, I believe, in the studio. And the first two days, we tracked both drummers for all, like, 17 songs. And then we have this, uh, like, poster board chart. And we all just got a little drunk and just started cutting songs. We're like, we're not doing that one. The lyrics aren't complete for that one. This part's not, you know. We just we chopped it down to a full-length record. And we spent the next several days in the studio just 
magic, man. Just absolute magic. Just had so much so fun. Cool. And in that time, I had talked with checks. I was going through some family stuff, and there was some stuff going on with my mom, and I had to get back to town. So I told Chex, we're going to make it work. Let's cut this record. Let's not worry about the location. Like, the way I see it, like, this is meant to be. So I actually, I cut the last guitar solo and the guitar part that night, and we had a little party, and I woke up the next day, and me and Brian Bobowick drove all my garbage bags full of stuff to Denver, and I was back. And it was like... I spent that whole summer living on John's couch with John and Eric and Zach and Sonny, and I was living on John's couch, and I was working full-time right. at Gravity Music Gear, and we were mixing our record, and we were, you know, I was playing it for all these people because we'd throw big parties every day, and we were getting new mixes back on the record. So actually how we built a following, and kind of why I'm telling you all this, is that's sort of how places really started in Denver. We were just a very successful band that kind of hit a, a ceiling in Missoula, and it's a town of 100,000 people, you know. And we started in Denver. I started sharing this record with all my friends, and they couldn't believe it. So, so how long were you in Missoula before you came back to Denver? A year. You were out there just for a, a year. Just, and a, had just you guys shy started of year. playing Big Shows of the Top Hat yet in that year? Yep, we quite? had done the Top Hat. We were playing regularly at the Top Hat. Um, we opened up for Jackie Green at the Top Hat. Nice. And Great American Taxi, which was uh, – and Leftover Salmon. Um, we had – we did a lot of great stuff there, and it was just a matter of me having to go home. It's it's a, a God thing, like a universe thing that's bigger than all of us, you know? Right. I don't know why those things happen, but that's where the road took us. And so we spent a year, actually almost two years, going back and forth and playing shows full-time in Missoula where I would drive up with the guys, so now John's in the band, um, and I would drive up, and we would play there, or they would come down, and they would play here. And in that time, we started gaining a lot of momentum, you know, because I had shared this record with so many people and I was burning people's copies. And so by the time we'd pressed it, everybody already had it. You know what I mean? Like by the time we pressed it, it was for people at shows that were moving forward. Everybody that I'd known already had it. Yeah. And so you didn't worry about, you didn't worry about keeping it a secret from friends or family. You wanted everybody to hear it. You didn't care if it was the latest It was the just so master, exciting. Exactly. Master. It was so yeah. exciting. And I, and it was so different from anything I had done. And I what wanted record them, was this? It was called Where We Are Right Now. And it okay. was a bulk of the set that we played this last weekend. Nice. And I was so excited about it because it was so like new, you know, and I was finally like, you're a musician and you know what it's like to have, to push your thumb on the like pulse of what you're trying to find. Right. You know, you're like so close. You're like, right. I love these bands and I'm, I'm finding it, what right. we're doing. And it was at that time that we started we're kind of like, you know, we're gaining momentum. We started playing a lot of big shows around Denver. And we started thinking, okay, well, we should cut another record. Like, we should cut. And it's still just the five of you at this no, point? No, at this point, we're a seven-piece band. Okay, so um, you added. Well, okay, I guess. So, sorry, that's a good question. So, Scott, um, it didn't work out with Scotty. And we, we uh, had Scott leave the band before we put out the record. So, at that time, we were a five-piece Jordan was kind of back and forth because he was having Janie with Mary at the time, but he was still very much in the band. He just couldn't make all the gigs. So Jordan's playing keys. We got the two drums. Brandon's playing bass. I'm playing guitar. And at the time, I'm rocking a stereo guitar rig on stage to make up for the fact that we don't have Scotty anymore and John's playing acoustic guitar. Right. And uh, Jordan's so kind John of in and out of the band. by this point. Okay. Yeah, because Jordan was out of the band and then Jordan kind of rejoined the band. It was a weird thing. He moved up to Montana and started the band with us. Then he had to kind of take a leave of absence, and then he rejoined. And 
we started playing some big shows at that point. Like we started getting beyond just the, like we started getting more attention. It started to be more beyond just, you know, we're opening for this, these guys at the marquee or whatever. It was like, Oh wow. We're, we're playing with these guys. We, we, we opened up a big shy, a big show at the big sky brewery and there was a lot of people there and it was crazy because that week was actually the week that my grandfather died and I didn't attend his funeral because we had the show booked and at the time it was the biggest show that I had played mm-hmm. and I knew that he would want me to go, you know, and it was like this really cerebral trip. This was at trip. the Big Sky Brewery? Yep, and it was, uh, so we drove from Denver and this is October at this point and so did Did the Barker brothers move down to Denver? So in the following year, yeah, they did. So okay. what ended up happening is we go back and forth for about two years almost and it finally becomes like we're starting to make enough momentum in Denver where it's like we should probably just live here, you know? So were you guys, would you call yourself a Montana band or a Colorado band? Well, it's weird because we kind of, we are both. And, and that was sort so of you, our identity. You take both as your hometown. And even, bit. and we, you know, Denver's always been my hometown. Right. And Missoula's my second hometown. And I think those guys would tell you the same thing. Yeah. We started the band in Missoula, but we're a Denver band, you know? Yeah. And it was weird. And it getting was momentum a, in Denver is a, is you know, bigger, it's, it's big, right? Getting momentum in Denver, getting momentum in Mo- Missoula is incredible, but when you guys are getting momentum in Denver, that's a big city, that's right. a and there's major just, market. There's only so many bands in Missoula, and there's, you know, only so many millions of great artists in Denver. Like, it's so much harder to get your to get your name out there and to really create momentum in Denver because you are in such a huge pool of amazing talent. And sure. even before this is before everybody started moving here. And now you really have this amazing pool of talent, you know, where it's like the more, the merrier, like, let's, let's make this a great music scene. That's awesome. You mm-hmm. know, um, we really started hitting it hard because we, we took shows with everybody and we didn't sound like the epilogues or we didn't sound like air Dubai, but we took shows with all of them and they all became our friends, you know? Um, we made friends with everybody and we were just, we hit it really hard. And at the time we, we had started, um, we had started working with this magazine that was, uh, man, it was crazy. And it was sort of like, you know, band Colorado band wagon, bandwagon magazine. And then up in Fort Collins. Right. And then through, um, essentially through them, we kind of like started advertising through that magazine and we'd take out like half page ads. We were working with this guy, Doug, who played a really crucial role in our band because he was kind of the first grease ball that we ever met, you know, where he promised a lot of stuff and to his credit, he delivered on some huge opportunities. And he was one of those guys where the, the opportunities that he delivered made the big ones sound believable, you know? Yeah. 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 We actually did this fundraiser. We were going to go to Cuba. Our band was going to go to Cuba, and we were going to do this tour that Doug was planning where it was in all the baseball states. And I'm a huge baseball fan. You know, we're all huge sports fans. Yes. Places, we are all huge sports fans, and we talk so much about it. We're all huge music fans, too, and that's what's great. People always think it's one or the other. It's like, well, we're multifaceted, so I don't yeah, know what to right, tell you. Right, right. You know, um, I've, I've seen a game in every major league ballpark. And yes. any, any chance on tour I get to see a, that's incredible. a minor league game, we, do, we, met, we met a guy who uh, – knew the owner of a, a minor league team in Spokane. Yeah. And so on our day off, we go see the Spokane that's it. Indians, you know, it's exactly. Cool. It's baseball. It's, it's a happy time. And yeah. that's what brought us into this opportunity is that we wanted essentially what it was is we're going to go and tour around all the major league baseball stadiums and we're going to play a concert while we do a fundraiser for this charity. So we're going to yeah. go around in a bus 
and we're going to raise gear and money and all this stuff for Little League Baseball, and we're going to wow. raise money. And so we're bought in, and we're like, okay, we're going to do this. And then after and that, we're going to go Doug's to Doug's opportunities. Right, and we're going to go to Cuba. And so we actually made this fundraiser video. We did this whole thing, and we're at this point, I'm starting to write new songs. And so we're cutting the demos that would later become No More Wasted Days. And we're starting to write these songs and we're starting to be like, okay, well, we got to cut it. We're making a huge push. Like as a band, we got some guys behind us, some of, um, some fans of ours and some of our friends that believed in us have had put some money behind us and we're going to cut a record. And so this whole thing with Doug falls through in a really hilarious way after we've already announced, you know, we're going to go to Cuba and we're going to do this baseball tour and all this stuff, which when you make broad claims like that, that was a huge learning moment for me along the yellow brick road. It's like, yeah don't announce anything until the check is cashed you know what i'm saying don't right. don't ever take opportunities and and run with them you know sure um at least in public <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 and uh so so we scrapped the whole thing and we fired doug and and it was like you know really unceremonious and to his credit you know it's it's no fault of his it's just it is what it is you it's know what it is it is he what it is ball. he did he but you know what there's something about that mindset too that probably every band needs one of those working for him. You yeah, know? you know, and and we, he had got a, a lot of great opportunities for us. You know, he was uh, hosting this thing at Lanny's Clock Tower, and so yeah, through him, I I networked with some great people that I still care about and talk to this day. So it's all it wasn't for nothing. You know, it's just it's funny how life works out. You yeah, know? yeah. So at this point, is the second record? No. So this is so this is where it all starts. So now it's 2010. Um, okay. And I guess we, I guess it's the end of 2010 because I think we cut it into, yeah, okay. So it makes sense. So it's the end of 2010 and we've hit it hard. We've done where we are right now. We've toured. We've really hit it hard. We played everywhere that we could in Denver. We've done all that we can do. We're like, we need to put out a real record. You know, they're not playing this stuff on the radio. Um, they played it on Alice. They played it on KBCO. They played it on 93.3, but it just was never, never any momentum. Nothing ever they only really played it hit. once. Do yeah, you see you what I mean? Getting, yeah. And and the thing about the radio is like it's great to be played on the radio. Like I love Alf. I appreciate him so much for doing locals only. They're the only station that does that, and that's why they have right. launched so many careers. Like just because they do that, and and that's the exception to the rule you know on all the other stations it was like well sam hill played it on alice and then never played it again and and to us what that meant was our record wasn't good enough so we need to make a, a better record and so we started uh kind of putting the feelers out and through that process we reached out to this company called bk management uh we were trying to work out with neil avron uh we were trying to make a record with neil avron because he had done fallout boy and sarah borelli's and uh you know yellow card i mean he had done all these big records that just sounded really clean and for me what really was it was the sarah borelli's record where i was like this is what i want to we need to yeah. sound like this is the sound that we need sure so we submitted these demos to bk management and greg richling who plays in the wallflowers said you guys can't work with neil avron you got to work with us like you got to let so me do it. he heard it at BK Management. How was he involved with BK Management? Because they also represented him. They represented his solo stuff or they represented As the a producer. Flowers? They represented they him as a producer. producer. And, and this so, was at a time where you could still just submit demos and people would listen to them? Well, I or mean. you have an in? We had an in because okay. you, you can't just submit. I mean, nothing can go unsolicited, but we were actively 
trying to work and we had submitted our stuff and and uh we were serious you know it, it wasn't just like oh yeah i'm this guy johnny too tall from utah and here's my demos it was like we were hitting it really hard we had all this press stuff we were playing all these great shows we played a lot of big shows with a lot of big people and yeah. it started making us um giving us momentum in a tangible way yeah and so greg called and we all I, i'll never forget it we were uh, at the house we were all living at at the time and we were on speakerphone and the phone was sitting in the middle and i'd known who he was because we had just found out right before we found out that he was going to call us that he was the bass player of the wallflowers he no, he put that out shit. in his email he said yeah. i this is who i am i'm the bass player of the wallflowers and you got to let me make this record please don't let don't let anybody else make it like mike cotto had been like okay neil Averett, who is greg's manager great great guy one of the best guys i've ever known he goes you know neil's not going to be available and greg really wants to do it and to be honest with you like i think you should do it with greg so we are on speakerphone with greg and he's you know hi guys like he has the most distinctive voice and we talked with him and wow was, he was hungry for the gig and you gave it to him and and we were hungry and we yeah. were hungry to to just have that sort of i mean it was so cool you know for me like when I was a kid, man, th when that record came out, like it changed my life and it was in my stereo all the time. Yeah. I know all the B sides and C sides on it, you know? Which and I, one was this? Bringing Down the Horse, down which the horse. was their, but in an interesting, hilarious turn, I've been such a fan since then. And it's, it's got awkward as I got to know them personally because they realized like I was such a huge fan of their band and all the records and not just like the one, you know, like I, Right. All their records are incredible. They yeah. have, like, to be honest, they've never actually put out a bad record. No. So it was cool, and it was cool to be a part of it. Um, and he was like, you know, I'm going to – I work with this guy, Brian Cook. He's going to be the engineer. And at the time, it was really crazy because Brian Cook was – I mean, I didn't, I didn't realize that Brian Cook was actually going to be the guy that changed my life in such a way – of where the path that my life has gone since then, you right. know, because Greg and I are kindred spirits and we can talk music all day long until the sun comes up and the sun goes down again and never skip a beat. And he and I always pick up and leave on the exact same page. You know what I mean? And you met him between for the wallflowers. So that was 2010, 2011. So that would have been what between rebel sweetheart and glad all over. Right. Yeah. And so we'll talk about glad all over later. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. um, so, Yes. And, you know, they had done that record and Brendan O'Brien was in their band and he, I mean, it's such a, oh, it's just so good. And then they kind of came to a standstill, you know, as bands do. And Jake did two solo records, which are both great. And, right. Um, in that time, Craig had started producing bands and he worked with this band called Halos, which is just an incredible band and they're one of those bands well they've they've had a lot of success but i'll never understand why they didn't have more like they're like a better imagine dragons you know the dude writes great lyrics <laughs> yeah. and their music is just incredible i know that seems probably like a really pompous statement to make but they're just such an incredible band yeah absolutely greg is in sound city the movie working with them in that cool. um so interesting story about that so when we started <clears throat> when we started we, okay, we're like, okay, we're going to make this record with Greg. Like, this is going to happen. Yeah. We're going to make it at Sound City because that's that's where he wants to work. And to me, it's like, okay, I'm a huge Nirvana fan. 
And I am a huge Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers fan, and I'm a huge Fleetwood Mac fan. And in my top five, that's it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And Otis Redding and Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder. Like, I mean, that's my wheelhouse, so my top ten. See what I mean? Now, was this financially really tough to make happen? No, because we had, had, we had already got that worked out. And okay. it was really just a matter of us. So here's what happened. So we booked the time at Sound City. And it's like, wow, dude, like we're going to record where they made Nevermind. Like we're going to record where they made Damn the Torpedoes. We're yeah. going to record where they made, like, dude, Fleetwood Mac. All the Fleetwood Mac stuff is done there. Yeah, like Rhiannon right? was recorded there. You know what I mean? Lindsay Rumors. The whole, yeah, that's what there. I'm saying. Lindsey Buckingham, he's my favorite guitar player. It's like, wow. How cool. So then Dave Grohl buys the console and they – the, Just, this is the Neve. Yeah. So you've seen the movie. Yeah. So where this all goes down is that we are one of those bands that got shortchanged on like, oh, sorry guys, it's not gonna work. And Dave Grohl took it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Hey folks, I hope you've been enjoying the podcast. We're gonna take a very short break to listen to the song "The Fire" from Places. Also, I want to let you know that Tyler Paul Glasgow is premiering his very first single at the end of this episode. It's called Heaven. Stay tuned for that as well.
So the only other, the only other thing that we kind of could work out was that Brian Cook was going to be the engineer, and so he had already worked. Uh, so he had engineered Train. He did Save Me San Francisco by Train, which had Hey Soul Sister and all that. It was their comeback record. And he mm-hmm. had worked with Train at the Blasting Room. So the only other studio that we could figure out where we could make it work was to go up to the Blasting Room. So in Fort Collins. Right. And and which, you know, to me, honestly, that was a close second because when I was coming up, all the best records was, were made there, you know? The yeah. Ataris and, I, I mean tsunami bomb like all that all that stuff was incredible man it was so (laughs) incredible and they were seminal so that was a huge honor and i've always looked up and respected bill and um i i loved descendants when i was growing up you know and then as i got to know andrew through he recorded brian's old band the heyday and that record just sounded killer and andrew kind of was like i met him at some shows and he was always really nice to me and he was just such a great guy so it was cool to be able to go up to the blasting room, but we did it on the condition that we got the A room and we were going to track it live. And Brian was the engineer and Greg was the producer. So we kind of put them, they just rented us the room and they were all around and Andrew helped them get everything routed, but they were, they were all just around. Yeah. And actually it was cool because descendants was having practice, uh, getting ready for some reunion shows in the B room while we were in the A room. And so it was like, wow, like what a, what a surreal and moment. We're in the like, a room. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, Bill came in one of the greatest moments of my life. We had just tracked the fire and it was just the instrumental. It might be song. my favorite places song. Thank you. And, and uh, we had just tracked it and we had come in from the room. And so we were, we were tracking that whole record live. So we overdubbed vocals and yeah. we overdubbed guitar solo, but the band tracks are all live. And, we had just tracked it and we were listening back to it and Bill came in the room and he's standing there with his arms crossed and he's listening and Greg's kind of got this look on his face like, wow, Bill Stevenson's in here, you know, like this is awesome because Greg's yeah. a huge fan of music, man. Greg knows everybody. Like if there was a people that put out a record in 1981 as a B-side and an import, Greg knows every person that played on that record and every person who's like wow. in that band, you yeah. know? And so... It was really cool, man. He just, he was like, wow, it sounds so good. And and this is awesome. Like we got the look of approval from Bill. He's hearing the drums go back and forth from the left and right speakers. And right. And and it was so cool. This is Drew and Checkers playing dual drums. I should mention too, Places had two drummers the whole time. And and those were the Barker brothers. And the third brother was the bass player, Brando. Um, And that's a really cool element of, of places. And you guys are not a jam band, which is what it's, I know, I know that double drums gets associated that way a lot. Yeah, right? because of the Almond Brothers, you know. But the Almond Brothers are anything but a jam band; like they are a real band, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. it has that. It has that association. So when you say it's we however have two you drummers, use it, you know. Yeah, it's like you got to use it smart, you know. For and us, it was always about the power. It was always it was about very, the movement, you know. And, and um, what works great. And it's just it really kept everything alive. Um, I certainly had a joy doing it and tracking that album was no small feat either because we had to get the isolation so there was gobo set up between them but they still had to see each other we were spread all around a room i'll show you the videos it's crazy we're going to do a commemorative video with all the footage that we have and we filmed this last weekend so we have all the audio and the video for that and we're going to put something out just as a thank you and sort of as a setting the record straight you know um we are certainly not as successful on paper, I think, as we were in life, you know? And so it's kind of cool that we sort of have the video of that to sort of back it up. <laughs> yeah. You know? 
So, so you're in the studio. You're recording a record with Greg. Yep. We used the black flag cab for the solo on the, on the fire, and uh, I had there was a hundred watt Marshall turned all the way up. I had gunshot headphones in while I was recording that guitar solo. Like wow. I had no actual headphones, like uh, just the gunshot headphones, because it was so damn loud. And we were wow. wheeling it down, and Bill goes, "You don't want to use that cab." Greg's like, "Yeah, we do, man. It's the black flag cab. Like we definitely do. We well, definitely want to use it." <laughs> it was so a great did, honor. When did that record come out? So okay, so this is funny. Um, the day that we drove up was the day that Osama bin Laden was killed, which is how I'll never forget. Like, cause that was the day that we started yeah. it, you know? And we tracked the first two, um, we tracked the first two days, uh, that weekend before that Saturday, before the Sunday that we drove up, um, Greg had gotten into town on Friday. Brian got into town on Saturday and we played the little bear. Greg actually played one headlight with us at Little Bear, which was super awesome. That's it was just awesome. really cool. That's <laughs> you know? awesome. It was really like kind of so a come together. Post moment, Osama you know? bin Laden places started to get successful. Yeah. So we so but I had thrown out my voice and you know, at the time I was drinking real hard and I was just really lost, you know, as a person and I was caught up and and uh you know, that's how it goes. And so I was young, you know? I wasn't smart. And that's the thing about young people is they think they're smart but they're not. And that's what all the older people are always trying to tell them all the time. It's just like, I know that you think you know everything. So did I like six years ago. But now I've come to tell you. <laughs> I'm back from the future you know to nothing. tell you that you know nothing. Please <laughs> yeah, yeah, listen yeah. to me. And, uh, you know, so we, we cut the first two days. And I spent the next three days in the studio trying to sing. We tracked all of the music for the first two days for the seven-song album. And it was amazing. Tracked all live. It was incredible. And so what ended up happening is I couldn't sing, so we booked – some tickets and uh checks brandon jordan and i who are the four guys that sang on the album uh flew out to la and we cut the rest of it at brian's studio in la which was super surreal and we stayed with greg in the holmby hills which is sweet i mean that's where michael he, he lives right down the street from where michael jackson died he lives right down the street from the playboy mansion we drove by it every day to and from the studio wow super surreal it's like this big hill and all the people that work there have to park alongside the hill. You know what I mean? It's like there's no parking inside. It's crazy. Wow. So it was super surreal. He lives on the same street as Frank Sinatra. Like it was wild. So you're staying there at we, it was house. It was surreal. So we get off the airplane and we get there and, and we stop at the liquor store. And he's like, I know you guys, you know, at the time, man, we were, we hit it hard, you know? Yeah. And so we stop at this liquor store and we load up his wife's, he's, he's in his wife's black Porsche Cayenne. And Greg has the black 911. And so they've switched for the week so that he could come pick us up at the airport. He looks like Billy Crystal in a New York Mets hat, right? And he's he's like, <laughs> yeah. he picks us up from the airport. And so we drive him, and we're rolling through his his neighborhood. And Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys is walking his dog at the park. Stop. Right? Stop. That's what I'm saying. So I go, Greg. He's like, yeah, man, that's Brian Wilson. I'm like, Greg, like, can we go say what's He's like, no, man, come on. He's walking his He's dog. He's walking his dog. He's walking his dog. <laughs> and it was that was like the moment for me where it was like, whoa, dude, like you've made it. So we go through the speed bump as we're pulling by this park, and the back hatch of the Cayenne comes up, and all the beer spills out, like two full cases of Coors Light, right? So I'm out there. We're picking it up. Like there's every single car that is driving by is black, and it's like either a Mercedes or a Porsche or like, a you know, it's something very nice. Yeah. And has tinted windows. And here we are, like, long-haired dudes that just got off a flight where we have already been drinking all day. And we're in hilarious shape because we're 25 and, you know, or 23. I guess I was 23 at 
24 at the time and we just thought we knew everything you know and here we are picking up all the beer on the street as these nice cars rolled by and i'm sure greg was mortified you know we're just like right. literally chasing right. coors lifestyle like dude i can't paint you a picture of how nice of a place that we were in and like what i looked like just for me like i had long blonde hair and i was wearing like a hilarious button up and like holy jeans and converse all-stars you know what i mean yeah. and so i'm like yeah picking up rolling beers everywhere it was so funny and it's the four of you guys are down there right and and greg poor greg so we stayed at his house and it ended up being this amazing time because it broke the wall for me between um, – it was actually the moment when I, when I talk about walking down the yellow brick road where it became human, you know. We're staying in Greg's house and we're in his living room and I'm sitting across from his Grammy, you know. Like it's just sitting right there. Yeah. And I'm just looking at it and I'm like, that's what a Grammy Award looks like. Right. I've always, I've always oh, wanted not, to have Oh, not one. like his Grammy, like his right. grandma. Right, no, the Grammy yeah. Award. Yeah. <laughs> and then you go up to his, his room because Greg is a super humble guy and he's he's not he's not a rock star, man. Like for, for what an actual rock star he is, like in every sense of the word, on paper and whatever else, he's a really humble, normal guy who just dude. wants to talk about music and the chillest guy. One of my favorite human beings alive. All cool. those guys in that band are. They seriously are. They are they are the rare breed, you know, where they just right. they love the music and that's what it's for. And you go up to Greg's room and I mean Greg played on uh Fiona Apple's title and um Macy Gray's big record, you know? And so he's got these plaques for all these records and I'm just sitting here like, Wow, this is crazy. Like we've done it. Like here we are. We're walking farther and farther down the yellow brick road and now here we're in oz you know we've made it the emerald city here we come right so we we have this hilarious time you know greg's house is old and we're all sleeping on air mattresses and in the middle of the night the first night we get there we still laugh about this today just this last week and the guys and i were laughing about it so we were all kind of stationed in different rooms in his house and air mattresses and they were electronic and Greg had set us up and they were nice, but they started draining. So his house was so quiet and his son is upstairs and him and his wife are upstairs sleeping and we're on the downstairs sleeping on the floor. And you just hear from the other room, turn on the air mattress, <laughs> doing it in spurts because you don't want to do it for too long because it's so loud. And then my butt started touching and I was like, oh man, <laughs> you turn yeah, on, turn it's back so on loud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We still laughed at this. Try not about to that. ruin anybody's so night. In that time, we ended up having such a great time. We were there for four days, and so we got there that it was like five with the day that we got there. You know, we were there for four full days. So that Monday and Tuesday, we walk in, and my voice is still not 100%. I'm at about 65%, and that's why I hate listening to that album because it just kills me. It just kills me to hear myself back handicapped, you know? You had to. And we did eight songs for that because we did the seven that were on the record and we also did our Jackson 5 cover. And so I did four the first day and four the second day. And we were done. And then we went to Benihana. And, you know, when you're in Hollywood like that with, with people that are – like we went, to the Ho or we went to the Benihana where we sat and it was like our group of five and then the other three people that were there – one was the director for Comedy Central. One worked for Dick Clark Productions and th did the New Year's Eve show, you know. And the other one was the planner for ABC. And they were just their friends, so they're like, they're like, yeah, we're just hanging out, you know. Go and we're home. like sitting there taking sake bombs, screaming sake at the bottom, at the top of our lungs, you know. It's just really hilarious. Probably still mortified. Oh, uh, Greg! At that point, Greg was having a blast because we were fun, you know. And it was never. Yeah. We were never. Uh, 
we were always fun people to be around. We were never sloppy. So that, sure. that was the one good thing we that had was going the, for that's us. The, yeah, the that was the one is. silver lining is we were always a lot of fun. And so you recorded the second record. You put down the lead vocals. And now you're heading back to Colorado, I yeah, assume. Yeah, we fly, bl- we fly back on one of the most hilarious, hilarious flights that's ever happened where Jordan and Brandon sat on the front of the plane and Chex and I – uh, sat in the back of the plane. So you should also know this is when the decision happened. Yeah. So the night that we were on that plane is the night that LeBron James did the decision, which is oh. kind of cool because we watched it on the United Airlines flight. Okay. And so post had- Osama bin Laden places starts getting successful. Post LeBron James going to Miami, the band gets more successful. Well, you know, at this time it just started to become real for us. And, and it, you know, we had, we had begun kind of playing bigger shows, but then, from here, it just started escalating. So at this time, um, you know, the year before we had done that uh, contest at the Summit Music Hall or whatever, it was like that bandwagon thing with Colorado Bandwagon right. Magazine. And we got second place, and James and the Devil won, which they were a great band, and they totally deserved it. And I have always thought that band competitions are hilarious in itself. So to me, it was just fun. Like, we played a lot of really big shows at the Summit, and it was great. And we get back, and we start – We've not heard our record yet because Brian and Greg are like, we're not going to send you bounces. We're going to send you mixes. So we get back and we're working through stuff. We start playing some big shows. Um, we are also like we have a we have a fan base at this point. Like a there's people that there's people that care. People besides your parents and friends that like your music. Right, which was super surreal. And I've always had like I've always been really fortunate to have people that cared about my music and all of the bands that I've been in and I've never taken it for granted. I've always tried to be really thankful and just yeah, graceful about it because I am really grateful about it, you know? Um, Absolutely. But this was surreal because this is where it started actually kind of taking off and we start get gearing up for this record. We're doing press stuff. Uh, we do the music video for The Fire. Um, it culminates in us doing our CD release show and in, and behind the scenes, you know, the whole time, um, Greg and Brian are doing everything they can to just get us a deal, you know, to just get us in front of as many people as they can. Brian is close friends with the people that are doing the voice, and I get this opportunity to do the voice for the second season. Wow. And I make up my mind. I'm like, I'm going to do it. And the day that it, when it came down to the day, I was like, I can't do it. I'm not doing it. Wow. I can't do it. <laughs> so not going to do it? No. Who won the voice last year? I don't know. Who's ever won the voice? Name me one person. I have no idea. Exactly. Well, and they say, I mean, they, the they totally own you too for That's the point, a though. while after. Yeah. But I would rather never be known than be known for that. I'd just rather do it on my own terms or, or take the chances and b- go all in on black and have it come in on red than to yep. do that. Yeah, fair enough. It's cheap. Fair so, enough. And that was kind of where I was at, you know, so. And when did you start? When did you guys start going on on some bigger tours as an opening act? Well, so here's so here's the crazy part. So this is what really ends up happening is that places starts. We were the the kings of weekend warriors because to our band, like we all worked full time. We all did like you know. For our band, it was all about these runs that we could get opening. You know, we did some cool festivals. We did. Um, we just ended up playing a lot of. We were in the right place at the right time, I feel like, for a lot of stuff, you know? And yeah, it, sure. Um, so what ends up happening is we we spend this whole time, we put out this record, and it was a big thing. 
and we did the music video release party and we did the you know we sold out the cd release show in at the marquee and it was a really fun night and we had the the center of the westward that week you know we're like we're doing everything right 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 this is the first time it's like we're doing everything right and then the next week we go up to missoula and we have a sold out cd release show up there at the top hat that's right and then we come back to town and the wheels come off it literally happened like that it was literally so fast and before even the the weekend warrior and the tours that we had done that inevitably ended up kind of being the second phase of the band we had done this big record push we made a record with big guys guys that had the pedigree and had the names and had the power and certainly also had the um the connections that we were looking for and they believed in our music you know they believed in what we were doing so it it was the first time where i felt like we're on the right track like what we're doing is the right thing and just as quickly as that momentum was there like in a in a wave it was all gone you know and jordan leaves the band uh due to personal stuff and personal transgressions that had happened and with that you know he he had taken a phone call from hollywood records that which is disney and but before all this, there was this. There was opening tours, right? Did you guys open for Wallflowers? So, well, this is stuff? after. That's after this. So that was, and that was the only saving grace of this whole thing, you know. Oh, okay, because, okay. Sorry. Um, we had done. We had opened up some big stuff at that point, and we had, we had started to play bigger, bigger shows, you know, and uh, it finally culminated in all this. I mean, it was just, it was working, man. It was so magical, like that year. I think about it all the time because it was just like, we're doing it. Like it's building, it's building, it's building, it's building. And we put the record out and it was like, all right, here we go. Like now it's time to really do some work. Yep. And just as quickly as we put the record out two weeks after it re- was released, Jordan was out of the band and we had lost our big deal and we were back at square one. How'd you lose your big deal? We lost our big deal because we fired somebody from the band. Somebody quit the band two weeks after we put out our big record and they told us to call us back when we got professional. And it was a, it was a rough phone call to take, as you can imagine, you know, um, there was a lot of personal stuff that was going on between us at the time and Jordan had to deal with it and we were all caught up in the middle of it. And that's what made it hard because we were a family and it was also everything that I'd personally worked for. So I didn't, think it was fair <laughs> to have to lose out on everything I'd worked for because somebody else was not going to be in the band. I felt it was something that was easily replaceable or something that we could have fixed, but they didn't seem to share it that way. They wanted, so this record deal that you had on the table. There was a few. There was a few, and, and some were smaller. Some were smaller ones that we were going to be like, well, we're not going to pass. We're going to pass on these because we think we can get some, something bigger. Can you and tell then when me they all come off the table? You're like, they all oh. came off the table just like that. What was the what was the label that you had the conversation with? Where they where they said that was Hollywood. That was Hollywood Records. That was Hollywood Records. Yeah, and it hurts. <laughs> oh, I imagine. I imagine that it hurts a lot. Yeah, it does. You and, know, and that all happened this two weeks after. Dude, you're your talking about like you're talking about two weeks here, man. Fourteen days, like you. But we've been working on this for a year, right? So, and you, and this was you had a conflict with this with this one member, your keyboard player at the time, right? And he's also it's tough because he's a close personal friend of mine and we're like family backing vocalists too right and yep. and just really good dude all around and that's what makes it hard you know because 
people are allowed to make mistakes and that's just part of life. You know, I, I look back on everything that we did with places and I know that it all happened for a reason. Like but it all it, happened. It amazes me. They wouldn't just let you guys. But why? But why would they? Because, you know, here's I used to feel sorry for myself and I used to get really upset about it. But now I think about it and I look at it like this. There's a thousand other people that are twice as hungry as us that are three times as good looking that are four times as ready and they don't have this shit going on. Right. So why would they? So you think they saw it? It, it wasn't that necessarily couldn't. You guys couldn't go on without him. It right. Was it's more just a that, like, sign of immaturity and a sign, a sign of, of like, dude, we just put our record out two weeks before. Like, who does that? If that happens, what what are these what are these kids gonna do next to fuck something up? Why would you put all that money into a band that is unstable? Right. I mean, I that's just me being real like having you know i'm older now and i can look back on it with both sides and be like okay you were, you were 23 at this time 23 24 yeah i was 24 and so now is the band just over over or are you guys no we're still going on we're still going on and as a matter of fact so here's what ends up happening so then in this time um this is when we get the opportunities uh that kind of really shaped our band um we opened up for brett denon at the mackey and wow it was a huge show, but it was even bigger for us because like I got to talk to Brett after the show and give him our record. And I walked up as like a little kid, like, you know, just like, I love his music so much. And I walked up yeah. as like a little kid, like, Hey man, I, I really want you to hear this. And he's like, was that you singing up there, man? That was incredible. <laughs> that was outrageous. Was that you singing up there? And it was, you know, it was very, that's that's the, fulfilling. the best Brett Denon impersonation I've ever <laughs> that heard. That was incredible, man. He was just <laughs> such a sweet guy. He was so tall. I mean, I'm a tall guy, and when people tower over me, I take note, you know? And Oh, is he tall? Oh, he's so tall. It's really? Crazy. He's, he's taller, taller than, than me. You. Yeah. No kidding. Big time. Wow. He's probably like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, I would say. He's a big guy. I can't believe that. Oh, he's such a I've sweet dude. I've seen him live, he's but honestly, I, I, like, I guess not up close. beautiful soul. Yeah. We we opened up for Allison Krauss in Union Station. That was surreal. No way. Where yeah. was that? Uh, at the uh, New West Fest in Fort Collins. Really? And we had a, it was a super surreal day for us because they kind of, they gave us the rock star treatment all day to the point, like we had our own, we don't take ourselves seriously, okay? Like, especially not like that. Like we're not divas, you know? So it almost kind of becomes uncomfortable when you have people that are your interns that are walking you around and you have passes and you have escorts everywhere you want to go. There, There's a massage parlor in the, you know, dressing room and they have a wine bar and a, I, it was crazy. Yeah, what We're do I do with photos? This? You, yeah. you know, we did this interview. It looked like inside the actor's studio. You know, it was just this big black room, and there's all these cameras. I mean, it was incredible. And uh, we got to see Allison Krauss in Union Station, and they were in the trailer right next to ours. And you know, I, I got to meet Jerry Douglas, which to me, I mean, he, dude, that's about as good as it gets. And that was a great honor in my life. And Allison is the most sweet amazing she's like just as she is on stage so quaint and soft-spoken oh it's really yeah very nice like she was, <laughs> yeah. she was just so sweet and that was huge for us um and we ended up playing an arena show at uh during around this time we opened up for mayor hawthorne in the head and the heart at the magnus event center which was, was it just the three of you guys or was and there... tail and the get down shakedown wow and it was a really crazy show the head and the heart actually uh, they got into a bit of a disagreement while they were sound checking and they pushed our sound check back. And so we were actually line checking while people were walking into the arena, which is always what you want to do. Was it worth it to see them fight? You know, it was, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I will go, I will go on the record on some stuff and the off the record stuff that I've seen is probably 
probably more juicy, but probably will cause less controversy. But I will yeah. say that not everybody is what you think, you know, right. not everybody is what you think they are. Um, and some people are even greater than you think they are. I'd say like it goes either way. Yeah. And it's kind of amazing to discover that with childhood heroes. Yeah. For me, it was, a, it was a surreal thing. You know, um, Rami plays in the Foo Fighters and he also and plays in the Wallflowers. And yeah. so he took Jordan and I, we were t taking him out. Uh, we took him to Mexico city to get lunch and he was like, all right, well let's go back. And he, he put us on the guest list and we went back with, you know, for sound check and everything with them. And I mean, it was just super surreal to see like the biggest band in the world. Like they turned the Pepsi center into their office building for the day, you know, wow. and we just had an incredible night with those guys. I mean, it was just amazing. And you get to meet all of the people that you look up to and then you see them as human beings. And, you know, like I, I got to talk to Chris, the guitar player. I mean, he was in all my favorite punk bands. Like we, we talked about me first in the gimme gimme's and his, his Vox amps and right. <laughs> drank a lot of Jägermeister, you know, and he no just kidding. kept pouring me shot after shot after shot. Wow. And it was so surreal, man, because we were smoking in there. I was like, I know we can't smoke in the nuggets locker room. Like, I know you're not allowed to smoke I in know here, but they're allowed to do thing. whatever they want. Yeah. And then this guy comes in, it's just like, out of uh, out of a movie, man, this yellow shirt guy with a staff and a security thing on there just says, everybody out, just shuts the party down, and that's that, Jack, you know? And next thing we know, we're standing out in the parking lot, and they're pulling away, and we're just like, wow, that was crazy, man. <laughs> like, we just had a super wild what night, What did we man. just do? I know, I know. I got wow. to meet a lot of crazy people that night, and it was, it was surreal. Cool. And then, uh, you know, we started... Um, Man, I it, I think actually even that was before that was before Jordan even left the band. So that was right before our record had come out on that Foo Fighters tour. There they were they had just put out Chasing Light, and they were doing that. Um, that's the one that has rope and all that stuff on it, and it was that tour. Yeah. And so Jordan, that was right before he quit the band. That was that fall, right before that winter where he quit. And so the next year, we spent we hit it hard, um, and the Wallflowers got back together, and they did Glad All Over, which ended up being great for our band in one ways and and it also you know we had kind of banked on the fact that greg would be able to help us get something else going and then he just and I he'd mean, sort of already done that in a way yes but we had a, a an album cycle is just so weird because you really have to give it time but it's so hard to give it time when you're already all bought in and you're already like waiting you know and the Wallflowers got back together out of nowhere. I don't think anybody was expecting that. And it just kind of happened at sort of the the right place at the right time for some of us and the wrong place at the wrong time for the rest of us, you know? Yeah. And um, it was cool, though. You know, they put that record out, and the, the tour kickoff show was at the Ogden, and it was cool because it was our hometown, and it was a beautiful night where we got to show people what we were made of like on the biggest stage and at the time we were a five piece brian is no longer in the band it's just myself john and the three barkers and man it was awesome and it culminated in uh me getting to just talk to jake about our record which was super surreal and jacob dylan mm -hmm, and his and his stuff and it, you know during their sound check this is the coolest part they played they had they were rehearsing you know it was their tour kickoff and they were rehearsing and they played all my favorite songs for all the deep cuts it was like it was just for me and so in a way when i look back on my life and i look back on all the things and the regrets and the things i go well if you could have gone left and you went right or whatever that was like the moment where it was the universe being like you're in the right place at the right time like right okay. now here you yeah. are yeah and my dad you know 
got to talk to Jake and it was a fun time. And soon after that, you know, we, we went from one successful tour to going on. We, we did this tour as a band ourselves and we, we connected and we did, you know, I think it was like 13 shows in 14 days. We did day trotter right after counting crows was there, wow. which was so surreal. And I still have the set list. Like I picked they up their set, their set list. list. Yeah. They left their trash. I actually, here's a creepy thing. I'm full disclosure. This is the truth. They left Starbucks napkins and we kept them in our van because we were like, they have good mojo. Like, let's keep the Starbucks. Keep yeah. Like, they're still in these the are, van. These, yeah. You know, and they left their set list and just like this cool stuff. It was just, it was so surreal. It's like, here we are. Like, we're doing this, you know? At the time, we we're all burned out and we're all trying to figure out if we're on the right path or not. And we do burned this out, tour. But maybe things are starting to pick back up. Yeah. We're just burned out in the fact of like, dude, you can only be so half successful for so long before yeah. you start to want full failure or full success and nothing in between. Yeah, yeah. And we did this great tour. You know, we played up at Sturgis, and it was amazing. Um, we played in Chicago. We stayed at the Hard Rock Hotel, and we had a hilarious night where uh, – so the acapella uh, pentatonics, we called ahead, yeah. so we left Day Trotter, right? We, we left Day Trotter, and it's in Iowa. It's in it's like the Tri-City area is Davenport, Iowa there. And so we're driving into Chicago, and our booking agent, Justin, books us a room at the Hard Rock in Chicago. It's like a congratulations. Like, you guys, you're killing it. You just did a huge thing for this band. I mean, Day Trotter was a big thing for us because that's a huge – it's a huge And deal. it's a huge uh, just community, and we killed it. Like, we were feeling particularly, like, on the top of the world. Like, we just went in there we and rocked it, you know? <laughs> like, we rocked it. And so we get there, and Pentatonics, who at the time, they weren't as big as they are now. They were very new. I think they'd just been on whatever show they were on. They parked in our parking spot. And so we had to drive so far with our huge van and trailer through the streets of Chicago, and we had the most – it's all on tape, which is why it's so funny – we get caught on upper and lower Wacker downtown in, yeah. in Chicago. We keep driving by this homeless guy because we're trying to be able to turn in and they've got it blocked off. So we just keep going to this square. And the first time around, I gave this guy this whole bag of beef jerky, right? I'm trying to be a good guy. I'm like, he stopped. He said he was hungry. I was like, well, I don't have any cash for you, man, but I got this bag of beef jerky. So I gave it to him. Little do I know that like 45 seconds later, I would be back around stuck at the same stoplight where he's just sitting there. It's obviously us in the same van and trailer. Dude, that happened for 30 minutes, man. <laughs> over and over. How and many over. bags of beef jerky did you have on you? Dude, we couldn't talk to him anymore after like the third time around because he just started screaming at us. And we were just like, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I don't know what you want me to do. <laughs> he gave you the beef jerky. It was funny, man. You know, yeah. we had a great time. We played a lot of great shows. We connected with a lot of cool people on that. And our response to come home was like, let's just break the band up. Let's start something new. And at the time, that was a really good decision, we felt. We felt like we're going to just jump right into a new project. We're going to kind of change with the vibe, the new places, stuff that we're writing. We're going to kind of go down this more soulful, a little bit R&B vibe. You were going to keep the same members, call it something else. Right. And keep going. And probably still keep a lot of your same connections and do cool things. Right. Why Why would you change the band name? Because we wanted to play new music and we didn't want to be, you know, it was so it was a sore subject and um, we just wanted a fresh start, you know? That's all. We, and, we just, we wanted a fresh start. And now with, did you feel that there was momentum behind the band anymore at that time after you'd opened for the Wallflowers, after you'd done all these cool gigs or was it like we had when you so went much, back? We had so much momentum and to the point where when we announced our last shows, it was a very, 
spur of the moment thing and people kind of resented us I think for it because they thought it was a joke they like actually thought we were messing with them and yeah. when we were literally How did like feel? he was bummed you know we still but at the time I was sharing demos with him you know and I flew out to California at that time and I stayed with you know and we had dinner with him and we had dinner with Brian I mean we I'm still close with those guys you know that that's never changed it's just the where the music was at for me was at a crossroads and I was going through an existential thing. And this is a, a, again, the universe brings it all back around. It was like, I wasn't in the right place at the right time. Like I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I had gotten married and I had, you know, I, I married somebody that I thought was a good person and I thought I could trust. And in that time, you know, uh, her job was potentially under under transfer to Hollywood. And so we went out there to check it out, and that's when we saw everybody. And then I came back from that trip, and, you know, the Barkers were just like, well, if you're going to move away, then we're not going to live here. And they moved home, and that was that. You know, They were they, in Denver, moved uh -huh. back to Missoula. Yeah, they moved back to Missoula. And you were going to be living in Hollywood. Well, but, I mean, you know, the funny thing about the truth is is that it's only really the truth, you know, and people can tell you stuff and it doesn't mean it's the truth. And so when the truth comes out later, it's like, oh, well, I guess that was all pointless because it wasn't, it w none of it was real, you know. And uh, that was the end of that, you know, and, and I went through a really big writer's block. I, I had been writing songs almost on a daily basis for like 10 years at that point, and I couldn't write anything without just being and like, Were you sober at this point? This is garbage. I was sober. Yeah. I was already over a year sober at that point. And you're 20, almost two years. Six now, 25. Yep. Yep. I quit when I was 25. So, man, it was, uh, it was, it was really weird. And I started going to school for audio engineering on my 27th birthday. It was my first day. So, it was a it was just a transitional time i wanted to learn how to make records and i needed a new challenge and i needed to be i just needed a break i've been playing full time in a band and i had just ridden this wave and i i still was bitter about it. to be honest with you until yesterday when i woke up man i carried this bitterness around with me man for 5 years just maybe even longer than that you know maybe 7 years once everything went down with jordan and once we lost the deal and you know Maybe it was bigger than all of that because it was the realization that I was now finally where I'm supposed to be, like right now. Like after this last weekend, I'm finally where I'm supposed to be, you know? Yeah. We, You know, you said something poignant to me when we were talking a few weeks ago, and you said, well, places will never be written in the book of rock and roll, you know, the, the rock and roll echelon, as you say. And that's true, and that's a tough pill to swallow because I think – Anybody that ever saw our band knew we were certainly good enough to, and we certainly could have had the opportunity to. Absolutely. And that's a tough pill to swallow because when you do everything right and it doesn't work out, you're left with a lot of questions. But now I sit back and I'm thankful. I'm thankful for all the opportunities that we had. I got to meet a lot of my heroes and have conversations with people that I never thought that I would have conversations with and see things that I never thought that I would see and do things that I never thought that I would do. And I'm really thankful for all of that. A lot of people never get anywhere near as far as, as you guys did. Most bands. You know, you guys did a lot of... Looking back, you got to look at that and say, man, that was pretty stinking cool. 
not a lot of people get to do that right and that's what but that's what makes it tough to swallow at the same time because then you're like what do we where do we go wrong and that i can pinpoint a lot of those things and that those all the life changes that i've made in my life why you know the way i feel the way i feel about drugs and alcohol and just about the control that we have over our own lives all stems from that and i'm thankful for that that was really valuable information and in that time i became a great songwriter because i had to really pull back on everything that i was doing and not be so influenced by everything that i was influenced by and be influenced by myself and my life and my experiences and what do i sound like who am i what do i do and that question took me five years to answer and when i started writing songs and starting to do new demos in my studio i was like wow this is what i've always been wanting to do this is the music i've the always been wanting to play great i've had the pleasure of playing laying down some keys on some of it sounds amazing <laughs> yeah it's my pleasure buddy <laughs> it sounds it sounds great um but it comes from the experience you know absolutely you have to walk the yellow brick road and you have to go to oz and you have to see that it's just a fat guy standing behind a screen yeah. it's not magic yeah it's just a fat old guy behind a screen. So once you realize that, you're empowered. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I guess, and let's talk a little bit about your solo career now too, but uh, as one last uh, places question, that you know, this past weekend, I met everybody just this last Thursday. We did one acoustic rehearsal. They're the best. Yeah, they're the best. It's a great They're incredible. Uh, everybody that was there, I know you had a couple different... Uh, guitar players that weren't there at the same time, you know. Brian and um, Devin. Yeah, um, yeah. Devin replaced Brian. You okay. Know? Oh, but, Devin replaced Brian. Right. But and, Devin is my childhood friend, and Brian is just one of the best dudes that you'll ever meet. You know, he right. left the band right when I was getting sober. Um, right at the end of that, they're basically the reasons why I ended up just cleaning up my act for good was kind of what culminated in Brian leaving the band. And it was just a really stressful time, man. Like, I hold no hard feelings towards Brian he did what he was supposed to do and he did the right thing for him and that's all that matters you know well and and everybody seemed to get along very well at the reunion We're shows a family man but i i was going to say it seemed very much that way on thursday night I, I i only felt uncomfortable for the first 5 to 10 minutes because i was just the new guy in the room yeah but then but then i instantly felt felt like part of the family which was very special and got to hang out with everybody and then the two shows were incredible everybody hung out everybody had a great time it was uh, that's why it's so hard to swallow. Do you see what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I think about those guys every every day. And I think about the good times we had. I think about standing on stage in front of thousands of people and being like, we're just getting started. Yeah. And to have that all come crashing down. I mean, we we made the most of all of our opportunities, you know? We we did. You know, when when we were given an opportunity, we made the most of it. And so it's just hard to wonder why it doesn't work out, you know? Well, and I guess to what I was getting at is, yeah, it for the weekend, for the weekend, it certainly did work out right for this for this last weekend. And it was a great way to put a period or an exclamation point on that chapter after a, a five year hiatus to finally have farewell shows. I kept having people come up to me after the shows and saying, you guys are kidding, right? Or this is like you guys are announcing then. And, and, and I. I couldn't say anything because I was there for two shows. Right. <laughs> I couldn't say anything, but after a while, I just like, I just went with it, you know, because I didn't, I didn't know what else, I didn't know what else to say. Like, oh, so this is you guys announcing you're getting back together or whatever, and, you know, and I just said, man, I, I don't know. I well, cannot. and the epilogues did that. You yeah, know? the epilogues yeah. did. They're getting back together. They are which getting is back cool. together, which is great. Which is great. Um, 
and so is there a part of you is there a part of you even even a just a just a little tiny part of you that after the the weekend was like well shit that was a lot of fun let's do put it back together of course of course i wouldn't be a human being i would be lying to you if i said no we just played two sold out shows back to back like they were you know we were very, very, very close to selling out the Gothic and the Little Bear was at capacity. It's like, what more could you want? And do you think other guys in the band thought that too? Of course they did, but yeah. here's the other side of it. I'm just gonna be real. So we can put out another record and we can try. And I know where I'm at, my heart isn't in it. That's not where my heart's at. Right. My heart is in the music that I'm writing now. Right. My heart isn't in revisiting the music that I was writing as a different person. Like that is not the same person. And so I don't really want to be on the hook for that for the rest of my life. You know, I don't really want to be on the hook for singing those songs. It was a really magical time, man. And it feels good to go out on top. It feels good to go, uh, to know that we mattered and that people didn't forget about it and that it was special to them as special as it was to us. And it took away that bitterness because then it was like, okay, you're where you're supposed to be. Like, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do now. Yeah. You know? I, w the funny thing is, is like, you can take it for whatever you want. We're still going to play together. It's just not going to be places. So. Yeah. You'll still play with all those guys. So whatever you. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you want to call it, you know, it's, we don't want to be on the hook for being places. And I don't want to be on the hook to have to speak for another group of people. I just want to speak for myself. Right. You've already done that. And it's I, new page. I'm in this point in my life where I'm finding the value of being able to connect as a human being to other human beings more than as a group of people speaking metaphorical stuff over the top of something. I'm trying to be real and just tell you, Hey, here's where we're at. Well, and so for all the places, fans listening, that's the answer to that question. <laughs> the answer to the question is that, you know what? Olivia brought up a great point. We never pressed our record on vinyl. And uh, in 2011, we put it out. So that means in 2021, we can have a 10-year reunion show. And we can put out the vinyl for no more wasted days. And if there's still interest in that and there's still a market for it, then you might find a bunch of older, uglier dudes on stage playing those songs. But as far as I'm concerned, I've just moved on. I have to, you know? You're, none of us are the same as we were. You're not the same as you were when you were 21. I'm 30. I'm almost 31. I'll be 31 in three weeks. Yeah. I have no interest in being the person I was 10 years ago. And if I did, my life would be really sad. Absolutely. It would be really sad. If you were still headlining Broomstock. I love who I am now more than I... Yeah. I've never loved myself before. And that's been the difference is that I've always hated myself and I've been this tortured person that's like existing in life and now I love myself and my life is turned around and I'm in a good spot I'm exactly where God wants me I'm right exactly where I'm supposed to be you got a great family I have the best family and I have the best people in my life and I'm making music with a new fire that I've never had because it's finally real and I'm finally as good as I always wanted to be yeah I took the last five years and really tried hard and I'm finally as good as I want to be so so it's not the end. It's just the end of places. It's just the end of that yeah. chapter. Now That's you're it. going to new places. Yeah. I would I would say better places and I finally <laughs> I finally can write the way that I always wanted to and that's what I'm looking forward to sharing with everybody, you know. So 
now you're going under Tyler Paul Glasgow. Right, because that's who I am. I'm the only one. Yep. That's just who I am. And I don't have anything to hide. I don't want to hide under a band name. I don't want to hide under reverb and sketchy pictures and whatever. You know, I just want to be myself. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you've started playing out live some. About um, two years ago, I started just playing acoustic all the time. Right. And now it's, I've got more band opportunities and, you know, you play. I mean, you, you play with me. It's yeah. For me, I mean, those guys live up in Montana. It's kind of just been a a cast of characters and and in that I have formed these new relationships that I'm really looking forward to seeing where they go and I'm really looking forward to just having the opportunity to play with these new people too you know yeah and and just have fun I mean music is so much fun now it, it's it's never been this fun before and to be able to pull into a room and be like here's my songs guys here we go like let's see what happens that's really fun it's really cool it really is. Um, you seem like you're enjoying yourself very much, and the the band thing has has been recently started. And I want to mention too, you have not released anything yet under your name. No, I haven't released anything since No More Wasted Days. But yeah. I have a hundred songs on. I have a hundred songs recorded. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's just been, you know, I wrote a whole album about the time that I went going through rehab and and getting sober and and what just what a horrible whirlwind that is on your life especially as you start to get farther away from it and you start to look back at your actions and really feel the guilt that comes from them yeah. and just the real human emotions that come from them. So what are you waiting for now? When well, does, when you know what's so beautiful is I'm not, I'm not really waiting anymore. I just yeah. I've kind of I got the song Heaven that you played keys on and I'm going to yep. put that one Great out. Song. Eric's got the mix rolling for it and I'm, I'm not waiting anymore because I think I needed to wait for this last weekend. I needed that closure. I needed to feel like I was in the right place at the right time, you know? Some of the songs that I've recorded, I'll never release because they're too personal, and I just had to write them at the time. I, I made a whole album called Recovery that was about that whole process in my life, and there was 15 songs that I recorded, and I think I'm only going to release five of them because the other 10 are just too personal they're to yours. me. Yeah. And also, I don't, want, I don't want people to hold that over my head. I don't want to be a drug addict that drinks too much for the rest of my life. That's just who I was for a small window of my life when I was so sad, you know? It's yeah. not about drugs and alcohol. It's about being sad. When you fix all of that, it's amazing what can happen in your life. It's amazing how little of an effect that anything else has on your life once you have your you're mind happy. together and yeah. your soul together. And, Will, do you see yourself uh, in the near future after putting out Heaven, putting out an album or doing well, a tour? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to put out the five songs, and we are going to hit the road. Um, I've got some cool opportunities that are kind of coming up, and I'm going to head to Nashville and work with Olivia a little bit and uh, just share my songs with some people. Olivia Rudine, by the way. She's the best. And Sam and uh, my friend Corey Rowe, who lives out there, Samuel Lee and Samuel Corey Lee. Rowe. Um, I'm going to spend some time out in Nashville with them and just network, and I'm just I'm looking forward to the next uh, chapter of my life and, and to see where this goes, you know. I've got a lot of material. Uh, what I really want to do is just get uh, the guys together and cut a record live, and that'll be the record that we, the full record that I put out with all my new songs. I got a five-song EP that I'm going to put out soon, and then I'm going to do the full-length album with the guys and have it mixed by Andrew at the Blasting Room. And cool. I'm really looking forward to that. So that's how I'm going to spend next year. Like I've I've kind of hunkered down, and I'll release these songs at the end of this year as I gear up for next year to make one last push at this you know i find it beautiful because when i was 20 10 years ago 
I had spent the year getting ready to gear up to start places. And we just culminated that with 10 years to the day saying goodbye to that so that I could start this next chapter in my life, even with some of those people. Some of those, yeah. You know, um, into a new chapter. It's beautiful, like how, how that timing works out. Like I'm in the exact same spot where I was 10 years ago in a new phase of my life about to start my new project, and that's pretty awesome. So that's pretty pumped up about it. That's pretty awesome. Well, thanks thanks so much for sharing your story, and um, we'll all be listening for the next chapter and for the new music, and I'll certainly have some links in the bio of this episode. Check it out. Tyler, thanks for coming. Andy, thanks for having me, brother. Appreciate you. There you have it, Tyler Paul Glasgow. That was a, a fun interview. This interview was one of the reasons why I wanted to start a podcast, or the opportunity to do this interview anyway. It hadn't happened until uh, just a couple weeks ago. But Places is a great band. They had a lot of great stories, a lot of great music. Everybody in the group is super nice and a great musician. It was such a pleasure for me to get to play those last two shows with them. Um, and, it, you know, it's it's sad that it's sad that it's all over honestly even just after two shows i was sitting there like oh man let's let's get the band back together as if i'd been there the whole time <laughs> but anyway check out places they're everywhere you can find music i want to say a quick thanks to our sponsor pq mastering out of las vegas nevada patrick at pq mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast for any music mastering or audio restoration work, check out his website at www.pqmastering.com. Well, that's all I got. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, you can email me at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Before we go, we're going to listen to the first single that Tyler Paul Glasgow is putting out under his name. It's called Heaven. This is the premiere right here, folks. No one's heard it except for you. Enjoy Heaven, Tyler Paul Glasgow. Oh, wait, there is one more thing. I forgot to mention, I'm playing keys on this track, so any piano or organ you hear in the background, that's me. Okay, for real this time.